Alright. So today we are studying Daniel chapter 3. So chapter 3, I like doing this just to get our minds focused on the right, or the, the topic for the day. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Daniel chapter 3? Fiery furnace, okay. What other object or event or golden image? Any particular people? Okay, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Benigo, um, Nebuchadnezzar, golden image, fiery furnace. I think we've all heard the Bible story before. So, instead of going through the usual you know, elementary Bible story, moral of the story type of Bible study. I want to look at it in a bigger perspective with uh, lenses that we have mentioned before are called history repeats, or the principle that history repeats. So why don't we put on those glasses as we look at this chapter. Hopefully we'll see something new, something that we haven't seen before. All right, so Daniel chapter 3, verse... One. Could somebody please read that for us? Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was sixty cubits and the breadth six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay. So we see here an image that is set up in the plain of Dura. So when we study the Bible, we want to look at things contextually. So um, obviously we want to study it contextually within this chapter, but also within the chapters preceding and the chapters, I guess, succeeding. Um, look at looking at this first verse. How does this connect with the previous chapter? The image. What about the image? What are the similarities and what are the differences? It's the same, but it's all gold. Okay. Well, first of all, um, how do we know that it's the same image? It's almost like Nebuchadnezzar's response to God. Okay. Well, that, I guess that was a trick question. That doesn't, that doesn't answer the question. That, that's a good point that we're going to discuss a little bit. Um, but it doesn't answer the question. The question is, how do we know that this image looks like the image in chapter 2? The answer is, based on this chapter, we don't. We have no idea what it looks like. It just gives us the dimensions. It's 60 cubits tall, 6 cubits wide. So um, a cubit is about 18 or um, one and a half feet, 18 inches. So that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Um, quite frankly, if I imagine in my mind, it's, that's a pretty skinny statue. It's like really tall. It's ten times taller than it is wide. So I'm thinking, hmm, how can this look like a man? I don't know. But all I know is that Spirit Prophecy says that it's the image of a man. It's the image that was supposed to replicate what Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2. So you're right. But based on this chapter, we can't say that. So be careful when you mention that in a Bible study or when you're you know, explaining it. Um, based on the Bible, it's hard to, it's hard to prove it. You can sort of guess and assume, but um, without the spirit prophecy, we won't know. Just for your edification. So, 
we already mentioned it. This image is completely made of gold. So, like Eric said, the king is trying to make a statement. In Daniel chapter 2, this is an elementary um, comparison between the two. King Nebuchadnezzar was told, Thou art this head of gold. So obviously, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride perhaps, um, and I believe through the um, counsel of his other not-so-wise wise men, um, he, was, he, was, he came to the conclusion, wait a second, you know, if I just make a whole image gold, that would be my, my, my statement, my defiance against this prophecy that says that I will fall. And we're going we're gonna to come back to that point of you know, that, that defiant attitude that, that, um, the, that the wise men convinced him of. So, image of gold. Now, verse 2 and 3. Can somebody else read that? Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to, get, sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The princes... Oh, I, I, okay. I, no, keep going. I thought you reached the end already. The princes, the governors, and the captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together into this dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I don't know about you. She had the King James Version, which is what I have. And um, through the course of her reading, there are certain words that kept popping up. It sounded almost redundant. What are those words? That's right. And if you read the whole chapter, that phrase, image which the king has set up, which thou hast set up, which I have set up, which was set up. I mean, it's just constantly repeating. It is set up. It is set up. I set it up. The king set it up. You set it up. And I mean, it's just constantly revolving around this theme. This is the image that I have set up, based on the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. And... This is a special, I mean, this is an important aspect, I believe, based on the previous chapter. If you would just look with me in Daniel 2 and verse, let's see here. Where am I? Ah, verse 21. Or verse 20 and 21. Anyone? Anyone? can read that for us. Daniel 2, verse 20 and 21. So in chapter 2, Daniel simply, I mean, through the course of the whole chapter, one of the main points is that God is the one that sets up kingdoms and takes down kingdoms. He's the one that sets up. But in chapter 3, the emphasis is Nebuchadnezzar has set up. He has set up. This is what he has set up. In the contrasting with what God did. And that's um, dovetailing very well with what Eric brought up. Now, several other things that are important to bring out. First of all, notice, notice the list of people. Um, in the King James, it says, The princes the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces. Now, why is the Bible listing all these people? Why can it, I mean, the Bible is just redundant. I mean, we, do we really need to know all that? 
Well, let's just bring it down to today. How, you know, what positions are these people in uh, re relatively to today? The princes, we can say those of the royal seed, of the royal family, um, the, the monarchy families, I guess. The governors are the statesmen, the politicians, and the captains. These are the military powers, military officers. The judges, the judges, the Supreme Court or the judicial system, those are high up there. The treasurers, all the economic leaders, the businessmen, perhaps, and the people that hold the purse strings. The counselors, I don't know exactly what this is, but I'm guessing that these are the educators, counseling people, I guess people that have the, um, the inroads to the education system, the professors, and the, um, all these type of educators, and the sheriffs, the police force, and all the rulers of the provinces. So all the other, you know, maybe CEOs or you know, leaders of whatever big corporations there are. Now, this is the whole list of the people. They're coming together. But for what? For what event? Now, we always hear, hear the story, the king gathered everybody so that they would worship the image. Now, that's true. But what event did they come for? You can say it. It's a, it's a dedication. Now, a dedication, how many times does that take place? It's just a one-time thing. When you have a baby dedication, you don't dedicate the baby every Sabbath. It's not a daily thing. I mean, daily, sure, rededicate our lives. But a dedication of the image is like the grand opening, or it's the great unveiling, or the great, you know, first day of whatever. It is not, I guess you can say, this event was not advertised as a religious event. It was a political event. These people gathered together for this political powwow meeting to dedicate this image. It was just to say, we're here together, let's inaugurate this thing. Support the king, that's right. It is a political act. It's a political event in which all the big shots, the people who are everything and anything, those are the people who are there. And they are here gathering on the plain of Dura before this great image for the dedication. Now, as I said earlier, we have, we're looking at this in the, with the eyesight of, or the glasses of the concept of that history will repeat one day. Now, based on the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, let's look there real quick, it tells us that at the end of time, or near the end of time, there will come another image. Another image that will be set up. And it won't be set up by God, it will be set up by human intervention. In um, Revelation chapter 13, Uh, let's just look at verse 12, and then we'll go down to verse 15. So verse 12 and the verse 15. Can someone read that? And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, 
whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by his sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. All right. So in the end of time, based on Revelation 13, there will be another image, another image that is set up in the likeness of another power. In Daniel chapter 3, we see that this image is a reflection, or it's an image, of the image in Daniel chapter 2. So it's supposed to look like the image in chapter 2. But in Revelation 13, the image to the beast is to look like the first beast. And we're not here to study the first beast of Revelation 13, but simply put, the first beast of Revelation 13 is a symbol, or it is the papacy, but a bigger aspect, or a broader view, you can say, is a political and a religious power, or united together in one body. And we, we remember previously when we looked in Daniel chapter 2, the image, we said, as a man thinketh in his heart, in his mind, so is he. The head is the, is the leader of the whole body. So the whole image is called Babylon. And the different metals represent the kingdoms. And the whole image is an idol. So even the image of, Babylon, of, of Daniel chapter 2 represents a union of church and state power. So we see the image here in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 3 symbolizes a combination or a uniting of church and state powers. Whereas in the end of time, the image of the beast is exactly the same thing. And both times, when the image is set up, it results in a death decree for God's people. Death decree to God's people. Because whenever the church and state come together, the next thing that results is persecution of God's people. And um, what else was I going to say? Oh yes, the image, this event, like we mentioned, is a political event. It is a political event or political reasons that lead to legislation of worship. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be so much looking at, you know, all the religious churches. I mean, I have to be careful how to say this because um there's different different perspectives. But it is not so much we have to say uh, we don't we shouldn't worry about so much the state all of a sudden coming with a sledgehammer and saying everybody has to worship on a certain day. We have to look at the minor steps, the setting up of the image, so to say. The steps leading up in the realm of politics, the um, political world, that will lead up to a sudden switch. All of a sudden, wait a second, there's a religious issue, and we'll be caught unawares. Because that's exactly what happened there in chapter 3. They were gathered together for a dedication of the image. But then the next few verses, we'll look at that in a moment. The next few verses, it all of a, all of a sudden became a religious issue. And then the lines became blurred, and um, at a point like that, if we have not been faithful, if we have not been um, perceptive in watching the movements take place, we could be caught just as unaware as many of these people, I'm sure. So, back to Daniel chapter 3. Let's keep reading. Chapter 3, verse 4. Verse 4 through verse 7. Then a herald, then a herald cried out aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, 
messages that at the time you hear the sound of the, of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship um, shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right. Now, what is it that denotes the time to worship? All kinds of music. Now, I mean, the obvious, the obvious reason is that there's so many people there, and the plane is so big, and, you know, acoustics probably don't carry very far, and they don't have PA systems, that the music is loud enough so everybody can hear. That's the logical explanation. But yet, you know, I, I tend to think that, you know, this was mentioned for a reason. I can't build, you know, I'm not going to build a, a case, so to say, like, this is truth, and if you don't believe it, you know, you're apostate or you're her heretic. But all I'm saying is that I believe we can know or we can foresee or we can guess, we can expect that music will have, an, will have a part to play in the final events. Music is a powerful agent. I don't, I, I'm sure many of you already understand that probably better than I do. But music in this story, all I'm saying is that it plays a part in the final events that lead to the death decree and the worship of the image. That's all I'm saying. I don't know how it's going to come about, but it is only, I think it will be foolish to think that music is not that powerful or to think that music can't have that type of influence. Because unfortunately, many Christians, even those in our churches today, they seem to think music is amoral. Music is just something that's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It's just how you respond or what you do with it. But in and of itself, it has no moral value. Well, it, I don't, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. But all, all I'm saying is that I believe music will play a part in the final events. And uh, moving on, it says, The decree is, Whoso falleth not down and worshipeth the same shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, I have to be honest with you. Um, at this point, I don't have conclusive answers as to why the decree was so urgent. Why wasn't it? Why was it so immediate? If you don't worship, you'll be cast into the fire immediately. I don't know. Um, perhaps it's just fear factor. I can't say. But all I want to point out here in this verse is that verse six. It says, "Whoso." Falleth not down. Okay. Falleth not down. Remember that phrase. Put it in a shelf in your mind. We'll come back to it. That's that's possibility. We can't rule that out. Oh, well, 
I don't know if he prepared the fiery furnace because I believe that this furnace was the same smelting furnace which they used to melt the gold. So it's already there. Yeah, that's what I believe. Huh? Yeah, it's like, hey, we got, we got. Yeah. It's like, <clears throat> the, the fire isn't out yet. <laughs> but anyway. But that phrase, falleth not down. I mean, falleth down to worship. That's the concept. Prostrate yourself. Keep that thought. Keep that word, uh, phrase in your mind. Shall be same hour cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Why didn't he just say, well, be thrown into the furnace? Or thrown in the fire? Or will be burned? Or thrown in the fiery furnace? He had to say, burning, fiery furnace. He's making a, a, a very emphatic point. This fire is very hot. And he's somehow wanting to get the point across. Wanting to get the point clearly across. And so, verse 7, Therefore, at that time, when the per- people heard all kinds of music, everybody fell down and worshipped the image. Now, this is where we come to the, the exciting part of the story. At least to me. Verse 8. Uh, verse 8 to verse 12. Verse 8 through verse 12. Anyone, please read that for us. Okay, this is, where the, this is where the twist really comes. Verse 8, it says, Who came to accuse the Jews? Certain Chaldeans. Certain Chaldeans. And it says, what's the first, verse, uh, first word of verse 8? Wherefore. To me, it gives, it, it gives me the explanation. I mean, this is how I see it. Therefore, at the time, everybody heard the music. They fell down and worshipped the gold image. And therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came and accused the Jews. It almost sounded like it was planned. It's like these Chaldeans were there. They heard the music play. Everybody fell down. And that was their chance. Aha! They were right. Now they go to the king and accuse the Jews. Are you catching what I'm seeing in my mind's eye? Okay. My holy imagination here. So these Chaldeans, now... No, we ha- we have extra insight because I've read um, prophets and kings. But what it says is that these Chaldeans were in fact the same Chaldeans in the previous chapter, and these were in fact the same people that urged the king to and flattered the king for him to set up this image. That's all of gold, and these Chaldeans did this all f- all for the purpose of accusing the Jews all for the purpose of laying this whole plot to, you know, hurt or to destroy the Jews. But it's not just any Jews, obviously, because they had these three guys in mind. It says they came and they had the names. You know, these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have all their papers just 
cross them off or put your stamp on it, whatever, to get rid of them. These guys were all ready. And so the final events in the last days, let me put them, before I go that far, let me explain this a little bit further. Now during that time, were there more Jews than just these three? There must have been. In chapter 1, we saw that there were more. Chapter 2, not so clear. But chapter 3, I tend to think there must have been other Jews there, other people that have been taken captive from um, Israel. Yeah. Not only that, but um, I believe it's is it Ezekiel or Jeremiah, Zedekiah, the king from Israel, would have been there also. Yeah. He, he came to Babylon and also worshipped as the governor over God's people of Judah. Okay. So the head of God's people on earth was there to worship there. That's, that's a good point. Never thought of that. But yeah, that's that's very good. So this, so this plot was not just for God's people. It's just for the faithful few, or can we say the remnant of God's people. It's for these few that were faithful, even though the rest of them went away. And you know, they may have thought in their minds, oh, it's such a big deal. You know, it's, you know, I, I won't be able to witness for God if I died here. Or if I didn't if if I didn't bow, you know, uh, I'll be destroyed. And what about all the people, you know, that would otherwise not hear the gospel? Or they may be thinking God will just understand. You know, I'm not really worshiping in my mind. I'm just sort of bending over. You know, they they might have those type of rationale. And I'm going to come back to that point. But the, these three boys, they said no. We're going to stand. And the term I want to, you know, the name I want to give them, is the remnant. Why is that? Because in the final events, the final movements of in, in the earth's history, the plot that Satan is so deviously manipulating and laying out through the political powers, through all of these different agencies, the primary purpose is to accuse the remnant. God doesn't, I mean, I mean excuse me, Satan doesn't care about the half-baked Christians. Satan doesn't care about those that rationalize away doing what's right. He doesn't care about those who is willing to bend over and tie their shoe when they should stand. You know, Satan doesn't care about those people because they're his anyway. He cares about the faithful few, the three, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, if he was there. I don't know where he was. If, you know, for those people. And so the final events, when we look at the image that will be set up, the union of church and state powers, the death decree, so to say. All of these things come down to the fundamental issue in Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the church of God and with the remnant of her seed. And these are they which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So these, this is a final issue. All of, the, all of the events that come out, and we, we can see it later on in Daniel chapter 6 as well, it is for the remnant people of God. So, with that broader scope, that broader perspective, let's keep going with the story. There's something else that I want to bring out from here. Verse 13. This is a little long, but 13 to, uh, to verse 18. Can someone read that? 
bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my God, nor worship the golden image which I can set up? Now ye be ready that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. A lot of things here. Verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, what was his emotion? Rage and fury, can I say, he was wroth with the remnant of her seed. So then these men were brought before the king. Interesting. Interesting. It says here, Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Instead of saying, in his rage and fury, commanded that they be cast immediately into the burning fiery furnace. I mean, isn't that what he said? He said, in the same hour, immediately, you'll get cast in the fiery furnace. I mean... He might be angry, but still he wants to talk with these guys. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from this. First of all, why do you think King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to give, so to say, these guys a second chance? Because he was friends with Daniel. Friends with Daniel, okay. Now think back two chapters. Chapter 1, what did the king remember? What was the testimony that the king had of these guys? They were ten times wiser, ten times better. I mean, can you imagine? President Bush is like, Colin Powell, what? He did what? Bring him into my office. He's not about to just fire the guy. You know, you understand what I'm saying. He knows that these guys have some substance. And not only that, I'm sure that these guys aren't just unreliable, lazy bums. I mean, they probably are responsible, get things done, get things done well. So the king knows, wait a second, this is going to be a big loss. So for us, with the perspective, with the projection of the last day events, if we are if we are lazy bums, if we are you know dirty you know slobs that don't do our work and we sleep in late and we do all you know we're not doing the best of our ability, when the time comes, people will just simply say well, you know good riddance. Whereas if we do the best of our ability whatsoever in the areas that whatsoever our hand finds to do and we do it with our might then God is able to give us that extra chance. Because in the minds of even the wicked, they know what a loss it will be if they destroy God's people. And, and this is where I believe the prophecy will come true, where um, God's people will be brought before the magistrates, the courts, the judges, the leaders of the country, and this sort of thing. Because these people have the capability to stand before the kings. Because they have that social ineptness, or, or not ineptness, but the eptness, <laughs> excuse me, eptness. But they, um, if they were not faithful in chapter 1, they would not have gotten the second chance in chapter 3. Just like if they, Daniel was not faithful in chapter 1, he would not have gotten that extra time in chapter 2. And so this all goes back to chapter 1. I already said, it's the foundation of the whole book. Are we faithful in the little things? 
are we faithful in taking care of our bodies even in the area of what we eat, what we drink? You know, even in the little things of life, are we being faithful to God? So though that gives us the second, you know, one of the reasons why the king gave him, gave them a second chance. Now looking at this in a slightly different perspective. Um, let's see where it is. Well, it's in verse 19, but let me just read it to you real quick. Verse 19, Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against these three boys. So, in verse 13, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded these three men to be brought before him. But then in verse 19, it says, his visage, or his countenance, or his expression of his face changed. So this, this is the mental picture that I have, and I believe this is correct, based on my study of the Spirit of Prophecy. And that is that King Nebuchadnezzar was wroth. That was his emotion. But yet outwardly, when he commanded these three to come, he was nice about it. He had a gentle demeanor. He was trying to coax them, sort of have this sweet, compassionate, merciful type of sound. He was giving them a second chance after all. This was the king of Babylon. He was the most powerful man in the whole world. He did not need to give them a second chance. He was probably sweet-talking them a little bit. Come on, guys, you know, I know how good you guys are, and now since I'm such a nice guy, you know, just help me out this once. Now, you don't want me to be a bad guy here, don't you? You know, this type of talk. But Daniel's three friends, their response was no less, you know, I guess, not, I shouldn't say incriminating, but to Nebuchadnezzar it was. He, they just came out straight. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, despite the king's mercy, I say that in quotes, they answered, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this manner. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up. Can you imagine? So this guy is trying to cut them a deal, so to say, almost. That's not exactly the words, I know. But with this type of attitude of mercy, they turn around and basically shoot him down. I mean, this is pretty bad. I mean, strip away all of your preconceptions, all your preconceived ideas as a, as a Christian. Whatever you know about last day events, whatever you know about Daniel and his three friends, all of that preconceived idea, take it away. Imagine yourself as just a, a Joe or a Jane on the street, and you see this happen. You see, these three guys, they didn't obey the king, they come before the king, the king gives them a second chance, and they just spit in his face, almost. They just defy his authority. I mean, in my mind's eye, all of those guys around, they must be thinking, who do these guys think they are? I mean, these guys are ridiculous. These guys are disrespectful. They have a problem with authority, and you know, they, they, you know, they deserve to die. This is the problem with the second chance. Oftentimes, when we get second chances to do what's wrong, it's sometimes we, especially in a situation like this, can you, you know, I can imagine going through Nebuch or the three boys' mind, well, God is giving us a second chance. Maybe this is an answer to our prayers. This is the way of deliverance. Maybe God is telling us, you know, just this once is okay, I'll understand. That doubt probably went through their mind. I know it would have crossed my mind more than once. But yet, in a time like that, they have to still stand for the truth. And in a time like that, when they have to 
deny the mercy of the king, it makes them look guilty. You understand what I'm saying? When we come to a point where we have to take a stand for the truth, if it's the first time and they cut us down, sure, you know, we don't have a second chance. But when the people come and they sort of befriend us and they're sort of nice about it in the presence of other people, of other witnesses, that makes it a whole lot harder. The second chance here is another chance, a stronger temptation than the first time. And in, re- and in their rejection of this offer of mercy, it makes them look guilty. And look at what, what the king says. Taking a, step, taking a side step here. So this it makes them look guilty. Now actually, before I move on to the next point, so the obvious application is, in the end of time, when the image to the beast is set up, as it says in Revelation 13, there will not be just one one time decree, and then that's it. There will be, I believe, many second chances. Based on my understanding, it won't be just one decision. It will be gradual, step by step. One little compromise leads to another. And if we're not careful, we can get on a slippery slope, and we won't be able to get back up. So we need to be careful now that we will be willing to stand for what's right the first time it comes around, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, even if it's the same temptation, because the devil's not going to let you off the hook after just one time. He said, oh, he's not going to do that. Maybe I should try another temptation. No, that's not how the devil works. He comes hitting you until, until he breaks or you break. And by God's grace, we can withstand his temptations. So, Taking a sidestep now. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar says. His open defiance, or his question. He says, You will be cast into the uh, same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? And then, according to Daniel chapter 2, he knows that God. He's had an experience with him. He's not just saying, He's not just throwing out just any old God. He knows which God he's going against. And, you know, continuing off that train of thought, look in verse 19. Can someone read that for us? Verse 19. All right. This is the famous phrase, seven times hotter, right? Seven times hotter. Now, this furnace, you know, I'm guessing, and I think it's a logical conclusion, that it's the furnace which they use to melt the, melt the gold. It's the smelting furnace to make the golden image. And the fire, or the heat that's necessary to melt gold is pretty hot. I mean, gold is not as, as um, resilient as some other metals, but still, it's a metal. It takes high heat. And the king says seven times. Now, I don't know how they measured the heat. I don't think they had you know, thermometers back then. But I believe that there is another more greater significance. We, we think, wow, the fire was seven times hotter so that it even killed the, the mighty men. Well, I want to I propose this. Now, why, just ask this question, why did King Nebuchadnezzar choose the number seven? Now, before, think about that for a moment. We'll come back to it. Now let me ask you this question. What do you know about Babylonian mathematics? It's based on the number six. 
So why didn't, why didn't King Nebuchadnezzar heat the furnace up six times? You know, that's our number. In fact, it's a number of paganism. You know, I'm not going to go into all that, but I guess it came from Babylon, so that makes sense. Maybe he's trying to defy their God. Exactly, but why seven? Because he recognized that's the number that they relate to. All right. How? Because of the Sabbath. Because of the Sabbath. It doesn't say the Sabbath day. But based on the number seven, King Nebuchadnezzar somehow knew that seven is a holy number. He's, somehow he knew that seven is the number of the Hebrews. And in, in the previous verses, he even says, Who is this God that will deliver you out of my hands? Who is this God with this number seven? You want to worship seven on the seventh day? Sure. Let me give you your seven times in the fiery furnace. So indirectly, the issue that threw them in the fiery furnace was what issue? Indirectly. The Sabbath. Not so much throwing them in the fiery furnace, but the heat of the furnace. The heat of the trial, the heat of this temptation, this difficulty came because these three young men were faithful to God in worshiping on the seventh day. They worshiped on the seventh day. Therefore, the king in his mind said, this God asks them to worship on the seventh day. Therefore, the, seven, the number seven must be significant. Are you following this line of reasoning? So indirectly, the Sabbath plays a part in the trial of these three men and in the end of time believe it or not the Sabbath will be the test according to Revelation chapter I guess most of Revelation but Revelation 13 the mark of the beast versus the seal of the living God as we see in Revelation 7 and also indirectly in Revelation 14 seal of the living God is the Sabbath those with the seal of the living God in the end of time will be the remnant the remnant will have the seal of the living God, will, will receive the seal of the living God, and they will be the ones that will receive this fiery trial of the burning fiery furnace seven times. Now, interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar says, "Who is this God that will deliver you out of my hands? Let me give you seven times hotter fire to try you." But we know at the end of the story, God delivers his three faithful young men, and in chapter four, God responds. Who is this God? I am the God. So you will receive your seven times as a beast in the field. And also, as a parallel, in the end of time, the final city called Babylon will receive what's called the seven last plagues. So God, he says, seven is my number. It represents my judgment also. Yes. Perhaps, perhaps. But remember, the, the issue is not so much worshipping the king. The, in, the issue is worshipping the image. And that's exactly the same in the end of time. It's the worship of the image of the beast. All right.
So let's keep going. So verse 20, let's read verse 20 to verse 25. Anyone? And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hoses, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished, and rose up in haste, and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. This section of the story I'm not going to spend much time on, because this is always where we focus all of our attention. Wow, they were thrown with all their clothes, and they came out, and they didn't even smell like smoke. The only thing that burned was their ropes. Well, you know, that explains the whole section. Yes, God, God saved them. God provided, provided, um, provided a miracle for them. All right? But I want to look, notice something different. Verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fire, fiery furnace. Now, actually, before, before I go there, there are some people that seem to, you know, what we call historical critical scholars or, you know, contemporary liberal scholars, whatever the term is, that seem to do away with all miracles. Now, this, this, this story is an excellent example to disprove that whole theory that miracles don't happen because it killed the mighty men and it says that they were cast in the midst of the fire. So it's, you know, sometimes the, the Bible writers cover their bases just to make sure that you believe what this miracle really did. Now, notice, verse 23, it says, they fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Now, this is just an interesting side note. When I looked up the word fell down, or fall down, or falleth down, throughout the entire chapter, it had to do with falling down to worship. It's a falling down to prostrate themselves to worship. And in this case, I know that it probably means they were thrown and they fell into the fire, meaning just thrown in. But because of what happens in verse 25, they see fourth men walking, and he looks like the Son of God. I, you know, I just have this curious notion, perhaps my imagination is too rampant, but that they fell into the fire and they saw Jesus there, and they fell down to worship. The application there is that they were more willing to worship in the fire than they were out of the fire. Even in the midst of tribulation, the true Christian will still be faithful to Jesus, will still worship Jesus. They would rather worship Jesus in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace than to worship something else outside of it. And this is a very key, key point. For those, I know that many of us Many times we go through these struggles in our lives, like, why do I have to go through this? Just nobody will understand. Just nobody is here to comfort me, to, to, to give me encouragement. Nobody can empathize with me. 
yeah, I get a lot of sympathy, but sometimes sympathy is worse than not getting any attention. But the promise is that in the midst of the fiery furnace, Jesus is there with you. And the promise is, the promise is that it is better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without him. Because you see in the next, the next verse, Nebuchadnezzar came near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. You see, these three boys, they went into the fire and they knew Jesus was there, but they didn't come right out. Can you imagine these three boys? It were, I mean, if it were, it were me, I, you know, I wouldn't really want to stay in there. Like, oh, I'm not burning. Well, better get out of here quick, right? Or can you imagine them in the fire and then they think, ha, wait till we come out. I want to see the expression on those guys' faces, you know, that type of attitude. But yet, no, they stayed in the fire until the king called them to come out for several reasons, I believe. First of all, they wanted to show the king, we are obeying you, king. They want to prove to the king, we're loyal. You, you commanded for us to come in the fire and because we respect you so much, we will stay in the fire until you tell us to come out. That is how loyal these men were. Whereas other men were actually the, you know, the um, dishonorable. But also, the other, the other explanation we've already touched on is that they, you know, in the midst of the fire furnace, being with Jesus is better than being outside. I mean, these three young men, can you imagine seeing Jesus with them? I mean, I've never seen Jesus face to face. I mean, maybe in, in dreams, but not like a vision. I mean, just imagining. But these men saw him face to face. And seeing Jesus caused them to forget about the fire so that they are willing to stay in the midst of their trial, even though you know, they could just walk out. So the king called them forth. Yes, sure. Granted, that's that's a good point. It doesn't officially say that, but in verse 26, it says, He answered, and lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. Oh, verse 25, sorry. Verse 25. And they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of Man. That picture, it gives me that they're walking with Jesus. I mean, granted, maybe they never saw him. You know, I could be wrong. But based on that verse, it seems to me that they saw him and that they were walking with him. You can also draw the application, they walked with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know. If, I mean, you can take it either way, I guess. But, um, Even though they saw Jesus and then they thought it was Jesus, the people, I wonder, mm -hmm. the people outside, like a king, other people, how come they, they thought the fourth person is a son of God? Oh, very good question. That's actually the next point. Good question. How did, how did they know that the fourth was the Son of God? How did they know? Several explanations that I've heard. First of all is that the three Hebrew boys and Daniel revealed it was a direct revelation of all that they saw in these other boys. But my personal take is that 